Welcome to the hills. I know I'm talking right now to people around the world online, so thank you for joining us. Oh, we're a church in Tarrant County that has three campuses at North Richmond Hills, at South Lake Campus, and West Fort Worth Campus. It's my joy to get to speak at all of them throughout the year, and this weekend I get to speak at South Lake Campus Live. No matter where you are, though, West Fort Worth, North Richmond Hills, anywhere in the world, thank you for joining us. And I've got to say a shout out to all of you at all three of our campuses. Thank you for your response to Renew. I know it's just the first week, and I know money's continued to come in. But already in the first week, we're over 25% ahead of what we gave last year. And your generosity just continues to inspire me. So thank you. And I also want to thank all three of our campuses for participating in preparation for Summer Spectacular. It's one of the most uh, visitor-friendly things we do as a church. We have people in the cast from all of our campuses, people helping building sets. And I just want to say quickly to all of you, it's easy if you don't know much about it to think Summer Spectacular is a program for children. Yes, it blesses kids, but it's for all ages. I'm going to be teaching each night at Summer Spectacular an adult class on the Book of Ruth. And I want to encourage you to think of coming whether you have children or your friend has children or not, and bring in your one. Because I promise you, in the book of Ruth, we are going to hear the gospel of Jesus. And your friend is going to hear a powerful explanation of what God has done to love and save the world. So don't miss that opportunity to bring a friend. Because I believe you can see Jesus all over the Bible. And that's one reason we're in this series called Epic Grace. We're going back and looking at some of these stories in the Bible that might be familiar to us, may not be, but they all involve epic fail because somehow in that story we see the message of Jesus and we're going to do that again this weekend. Now, let's say something about failure. and That is, we all are familiar with it. We don't tend to post it. We tend to only post what makes us look good, but we all know a lot about failure. That's why I was intrigued by a psychology professor at Princeton University. His name is Johann Haushofer. And he became a big deal a couple of years ago because he posted his failure resume on Twitter. You see, typically he lives in a world where everyone wants to show what they've done that makes them look successful. But he said, you know what? My life has been full of a lot of failure and I ought to tell the whole story. So he posted on Twitter all the examples of times that he tried to get into graduate programs and wasn't accepted. He posted all the funding he applied for, for research, where he got turned down. He posted examples of some of the essays he had written for academic journals that did not get received. Now, the irony, his posting of his failure became the biggest success he's ever had because it went viral. But I still love the idea that he was trying to communicate Because it's similar to what the Bible is doing. Now, the Bible is telling the best story ever. But it does it by telling stories of people at their best and at their worst. Because from the very beginning, the Bible is establishing the need we all have for epic grace. So all we're going to do this weekend is we're going to look at one of the Biggest failure resumes in the Bible. And the name at the top of the resume is a man named Judah. And Judah was a major 
fail. When we meet Judah, the first thing we know is he failed as a son and as a brother. So a little backstory. Uh, Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob, through four different women, had 12 sons. His favorite wife gave birth to two, and they were his favorite. And the oldest was named Joseph. And Jacob doted on Joseph and caused all the other brothers to resent him. So one day they're out in the field, and Jacob sends Joseph to check on the brothers, and they see him coming. Now get this. They say, here's our chance to kill him. We'll get the favorite out of the way, more inheritance for us. And Judah speaks up, but not like you would wish. Here's what he says. Chapter 37, verse 26. He said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agree. Now, you notice Judah doesn't have a problem with killing him. He's just saying, here's a way that we can say technically we didn't and get some coin. And we still get rid of him. Let's do it instead. So this guy has no problem with covering his coat with the blood of a goat, selling his brother into slavery, putting some coin in his pocket, and going back and totally lying to his dad about what happened to his favorite son. He's not just showing contempt for his brother. He's showing contempt for his father. Because by sending Joseph away, he was going to send his dad into grief for years. They knew that was a possibility and they still did it. It says later in that same chapter, verse 34, Jacob tore his clothes when he found out his son was dead. He put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. So the very first mention of Judah in the Bible is of an epic fail as a brother and as a son. But let me tell you something. His failure resume is about to get a lot longer. Chapter 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Okay, first thought. This is the first time one of the descendants of Abraham have left the covenant family and would rather go and live with the Canaanite people. It's the first time. It was Judah. That's not his only first. Next verse. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Okay. He's the first descendant of Abraham to go outside the covenant family to go find a wife. He did the one thing that Abraham didn't want for Isaac. What Isaac did not want for Jacob, Judah wanted. A pagan wife. He married her. He made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. So he's the first man to go and live with the Canaanites. He's the first man to go outside the covenant family to find a wife. He marries a woman who has absolutely no concern for that promise made to Abraham that Judah has heard about ever since he was a little boy. But he marries a woman who doesn't care anything about that promise and, frankly, apparently makes no contribution or impact 
on the character development of her sons. Because look at verse 6 and 7. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, another Canaanite woman. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Okay, question. How wicked did this boy have to be? When you think about all the sin and all the iniquity in the book of Genesis that God has tolerated, how wicked did he have to be that God would do this? And by the way, how weak must the influence of his father have been? Now, what does it mean? The Lord put him to death. Okay, let me help you. Here's what it means. It means God killed him. You say, well, that bothers me. It's supposed to. It's supposed to disturb you so you will get the point, don't be wicked. Okay, everybody, turn to your neighbor and say that. Don't be wicked. Everybody do that right now. Okay, I want you to get the point. Now, we come to an interesting part of the story where I'm glad the children have left the room. So let me unpack it. In that culture, your legacy, your name, your inheritance was a big deal. And the practice was if a man died with no kids and he had a brother, the brother should go and marry his widow and have children with her who will get his inheritance and continue his name. So Judah says to the next son, Onan, now you go and you become Tamar's husband and you sleep with her and produce children for your brother. Now, Onan has no problem sleeping with her. He's fine with that. What he doesn't want is to make babies. Because right now there's just two boys left. We'll split it up 50-50. If I go make babies with Tamar, we've got to split it up three ways. There's more for me. So I just don't know how to say this delicately. So they go together in sexual union. And when it comes time for owner to do what a man does to help a woman get pregnant, he stops the union. You read it for yourself. It's right there in the Bible. Okay? We'll never do it for summer spectacular, but it's right there in the Bible. Okay? And look what the Bible says. Verse 10. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Turn to your neighbor and say, seriously, don't be wicked. <laughs> now, ask yourself, where did Onan learn to think so selfishly and to think so little of his own brother? Who was his daddy? Do you think there weren't rumors around the camp? Whatever happened to Uncle Joseph? He learned it from his dad. See, Joseph totally failed as a father. And what we're going to see next, he's totally failed as a father-in-law. He's now lost two sons. Now, what he could do as a man of God is see this through the lens of God and say, I have lost two sons because my sons have been wicked and it's been partly my fault for being a bad influence. I need to straighten up my act. Oh, no. No, he interprets the deaths of his sons through the superstitious lens of Canaanite thinking. That's how far he's drifted from the ways of God. 
He deduces Tamar must be bad luck, that she's the problem. And so what he does is he says to Tamar, now you go back to your family, even though she was his responsibility, you go back and live with your daddy. And when my youngest grows up and gets old enough, I'll give him to you to be a husband. He was lying, making promises he had no intention of keeping. And so she waits, and she waits, and she waits, and she waits. Judah has displayed a total lack of character. And Tamar decides, I'm going to use that to my advantage. So, if you keep reading, Judah's wife dies. He mourns for her. And then again, I just don't know how else to say it, but to say Judah says, I still want to sleep with somebody. So after the sheep are sheared, think of spring break. It was the practice back then during the sheep shearing time just to have a big, wild, debauched party. And Judah decides to go. And Tamar hears about it. She dresses up like a prostitute. Now, Judah's going to the party, and he sees her beside the road. She doesn't have to say a thing to him. She knows him. All she has to do is be in the right place at the right time, wearing the right clothes. You say, well, Judah, I can understand he had lost his wife. Hey, Abraham lost a wife. Isaac lost a wife. They didn't do this. You'll see in the next chapter, Joseph, who is a single young man, is going to be seduced by a, an Egyptian lady, and he's going to refuse because he fears God. But see, Judah doesn't have that kind of character. He just walks over to the side of the road and says, come sleep with me. He doesn't know he's talking to his own daughter-in-law. I'm sorry, this is kind of perverse, but this is right here in the Bible. She says, it'll cost you a goat. He says, I don't have a goat. Well, give me some of your personal items to guarantee that you'll pay me a goat later. And he's so desperate, he says, okay. So they sleep together. She goes back to her father's house, puts back on her widow's clothes. Three months later, the news gets back to Judah. Tamar is pregnant. This jerk is so hypocritical. He says, she has not been faithful. She's promised to my youngest, let's bring her out and put her on fire. Can you believe that? But Tamar, she's shrewd. It says in verse 25 that she was being brought out. She sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah recognized them and said, She's more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. But what do you know? The jerk got jerked around. And I believe this was a turning point in the life of Judah. He took care of Tamar the rest of his life, and he didn't sleep with her. But he owned the twin boys that she bore, Perez and Zerah, as his own sons. And from this point forward, 
Judah's resume is going to get a lot better. Again, we'll, we'll cover a lot of ground quickly. So we pick up the story again with Joseph. He's been down in Egypt. He eventually, through a series of trials, is elevated to the second most powerful person in the world, a servant of Pharaoh. There's a big famine. Jacob says to the boys, I hear there's food in Egypt. Go get some. But don't take Benjamin. So the ten go down. They don't recognize Joseph. He's grown up now. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He speaks in the Egyptian language. They don't recognize their own brother. Joseph says, is this all you've got in your family? Well, we have one brother who's dead, and we have one who's back home. And Joseph says, go get the one that's back home if you want more food. So they go back. They say that when Jacob says, let's get some more food, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. And after a lot of cajoling, Jacob finally agrees. So the, the boys go down. Again, Joseph knows them. They don't know him. Has a big party for them. Gives them a ton of food. And then he says to a servant, put my special goblet in the youngest one's sack. They take off. Joseph says, now go back and catch them. They show up. Oh, we didn't steal anything. Well, let's look at all the sacks. And sure enough, that goblet is in Benjamin's sack. And now they're all desperate. They all come back. And Joseph says, you can all go home. You didn't steal it. Just this boy did. He stays with me. He'll be a slave the rest of my life. The rest of you go home. Fair, right? What's Joseph doing? Joseph wants to find out, will you do it again? Have you changed at all? Here's your chance to get rid of a favorite, and it won't be any blood on your hand. Will you do to Benjamin what you did to me? Judah steps up. Here's what he says. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Who is this guy? This is Judah. This is Judah the jerk. Judah the failed. Judah that has always put self in front of family. This is Judah saying, let me take his place. Let me bear the penalty for a crime that someone else committed. Let me do this for my father. Let me do this for my brother. Well, if you keep reading, finally Joseph broke. He couldn't take it anymore. He revealed his identity and it led to the reunion of the whole family. And it's a wonderful story. And it's full of absolutely epic truths. And I want to share three with you quickly. And here's the first. What the one thing this story tells us is that God is reliable. Because what we've seen these last few weeks, looking at Abraham, now looking at Judah, is that almost as soon as God announces his global redemption plan to reach and bless all the nations of the world through Abraham, you realize it is not going to depend on the faithfulness of the family. 
It's going to depend on the faithfulness of God. That Jesus is not going to be holy because of the DNA of his forefathers. Jesus' family tree is going to have a lot of bad branches on it. He came out of a mess. He came as the Messiah. So what I want you to see is that we never underestimate the resolve of God when it comes to what He promises. Now God prefers to accomplish His will through obedient servants. But if He must, God will channel His will through the disobedient. Here's what God says in Isaiah 46. I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times what is still to come. And I say, my purpose will stand. And I will do all that I please. Now, I bet some of you have been on cruises. I never have, but I hear they're incredible and the food's amazing and there's lots of fun things to do. Now, here's what I know. If you go on a cruise, you can make good choices or bad choices. But that ship's going where the captain's taking it. Now, while you're on that ship, you can be righteous, you can behave unrighteously. But that ship is going where the captain is taking it, and it will reach its destination. And so it is with all of the universe. God is moving relentlessly toward His announced eternal plan. God is going to redeem His creation. And the future is going to take us to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And every knee is going to bow and going to call Him Lord. And that's where God is taking history. Now you can cooperate with the plan of God. You can reject the plan of God. But God is going to accomplish what God has announced He's going to accomplish. Because God is reliable. And here's the thing. Along the way to doing what God has said He's going to do is he's going to use some people with some pretty scandalous resumes. In fact, that takes us to the very last time we read about Judah. So Jacob is about to die, and he calls all the boys together to give them a blessing. In that culture, it was a really big deal. Now remember, it is through Abraham the Savior is going to come. It is through the seed of Abraham that someone is going to come and bless all the nations. Which one of these boys is that seed going to come through? Who is going to receive that blessing? Well, you've already ahead of me. God picked Judah. It says in chapter 49, verse 10, here's what Jacob said over his boy. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. Jesus was going to be a son of Judah. Why would God pick Judah? Well, perhaps, I'm speculating, perhaps it was because he did turn his life around. And he did make that incredibly noble gesture to give his life for the sake of a brother. I don't think that that's the reason. I think God chose Judah because of all the brothers, he had the worst resume. I think God is making the point over and over again. You are going to be saved because of my epic grace. See, what he's doing is he's showing us that man is redeemable. By the way, you need to know your history didn't shock God. 
I don't know what you're covering up on your resume, but God's already read it. And he did not say, oh my goodness, I cannot believe you did that. God has never seen a resume that intimidated him. Because God has an answer more epic than the most epic fail. They say of Martin Luther walking on the road one day that the devil met him. And he pulled out this big old long sheet of paper with lots of writing on it. And Luther said, what is that? And the devil says, I have made a record of all your sins, Martin Luther. And Luther replied, well, surely I've sinned more than that. You better do more homework. So the devil came back with an even longer list and says, now what do you got to say? And Luther said, here's what you do. You write on that list in red ink, for the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Paul talked to some people at the Corinthian church who had some pretty bad resumes. In chapter 6, he mentions immorality, idolatry, total breach of integrity, some really horrible sin. And here's what he says. That's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, God never deems anybody as hopeless or beyond repair. Everybody's invited to be a part of God's redemption story. So let me just kind of be blunt. (laughs) If you don't think God could ever get past your resume, if you don't think God could know everything about you and still redeem you, Who do you think you are? I mean, seriously. Who do you think you are? That your fail is more epic than the grace of God? Jesus, folks, he didn't just come for sinners. Jesus came from sinners. You get to the New Testament, the very first thing you read is the genealogy of Jesus. And who's one of his forefathers? Judah. Who did he have the child with? Tamar. Who was the boy? Paris. The Bible takes one of the most perverse stories of the Old Testament and puts it right in the middle of the New Testament and says, this is the kind of savior you have. He came from sinners. He came for sinners. Jesus came for people like his own family. Because we all need grace that much. And he came, like Judah, willing to bear the sentence for the crime somebody else committed. I know it's hard when you've had something in your past you're so ashamed of to think God could ever get over it. So let me just be as clear as I can. There's just no way God could be dissatisfied with you. You say, how do I know that? Well, if you're in Christ, God is totally satisfied with Christ. He is totally satisfied with what Christ did. He is totally satisfied with the atoning work of Christ. If you are in Christ, it is impossible for God to be dissatisfied with you. Man is redeemable. And grace, grace is that remarkable. You know, I've spent a lot of time these last few weeks just reading these stories in the Bible of such epic fails. 
And that doesn't shock me. I am not shocked by the stories of fails in the Bible. I continue to be shocked by the wonder of grace. About the time I think, I think I've got it. I think I've got how amazing grace is. God surprises me again. In fact, if I was going to kind of sum up the gospel in one sentence, it might be this one. That the scandal of redemption is the redemption of scandal. That's what's so shocking about it. That's why Paul said the cross is an offense to people. The scandal of what God is doing is God is saying, you can't scandal bad enough. You can't scandal deep enough. You can't scandal wide enough. You can't scandal beyond the epicness of my grace. And so, John had this vision. This vision of a scroll in heaven. And somehow in this scroll, there was God's eternal plan. Somehow in this scroll, there was the hope for the ages. And nobody could, nobody could open it. And John began to weep. Who could open this scroll? And then someone said, oh, don't weep. You know who can open it? The Lion of Judah. And so John got excited and he turned. You know what he saw? He saw a lamb. A lamb that looked like he'd been slain. And everybody in heaven just fell down and started singing this song. It says, they sing a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. He did it. He finished everything God promised and started in Abraham. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The Lamb did it. You know what they call him? The Lion of, of Judah. There's a small uh, Christian college in Missouri. Since we're at the end of a school year, some of you students will appreciate this. Uh, it was a youth ministry class. The professor was Dr. Tom Hufty. The kids were going through, preparing for the final. They had their review with him. He told them to be responsible for everything in the book. They knew it was going to be hard. They came in the day of the final. The, the final was on every desk turned over. And at the proper time, he turned them all to turn the final over. And when they did, to their shock, every test was completed. And at the top of every test, there was a big red A. And Dr. Hefty said, you, this test has been done and completed for you by someone else. Every answer is right. You will get an A, not because of anything you've done, but because someone has done it for you. You've just experienced grace. And here's the thing. One of the great mistakes a lot of us make is we think, you know what God is doing with grace? God's giving you a second chance. You don't need a second chance. You need a substitute. 
What you need is for someone to take the test for you and get it right. You don't need a better resume. What you need is an epic Savior. And His name is Jesus. Or as He's sometimes called, the Lion of Judah. Let me pray over you. So Father, I I don't even have to wonder. I know that every campus, at every service, someone is struggling with their resume. Wondering, is there enough whiteout? Can I ever get past this? You brought them here today, God, to hear this word. You brought them here, God, to hear good news. You're not asking them to do better, try harder. You're asking them to bow and receive from Jesus. Amazing grace. So God, help us in a, in a fresh and new way today. Hear the epic gospel that someone has paid for the crime we committed, that the slate is clean, that we're in the family of God forever. I pray they can receive this in Jesus' name. Amen.